whether you're in our FMC watching or you're online watching the service or here in our worship center, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 1 through 15 this morning. I've entitled this message, How to Defeat the Devil. As pilgrims, we are walking through this land. It's not easy, is it? There are difficulties that we face every day. One of those difficulties is temptation. Temptation can come in a lot of different ways. But you could put all the temptation into three categories. And that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, we know that as we travel through these difficult days, these enemies that we face would include the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil is the one that I want to speak to specifically today because he's the one who causes us a lot of problems. Because he uses the allurements of the world and the desires of the flesh to draw us away from the Lord. As a matter of fact, we read in the book of James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. As powerful as temptation may be, as Christians, we have the power to overcome it. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Although the devil is a formidable foe, he is not all-powerful. And we need to keep this in mind. We can defeat the devil by following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. The example I'm speaking of is the one I've already identified in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Here, Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. The devil tried every way he could to cause Jesus to sin, but he failed. He was not successful in his attempt. Jesus won the victory. And let me remind you that Jesus won the victory not just as the Son of God, which he was. He was God in human flesh. But as the Son of Man, he was walking among men, God among men. So his defeat of the devil was in such a way that you and I can be reminded that we too had the victory as we walk according to the way the Lord Jesus lived. So let's begin to look at this passage together today, and I want us to learn how to defeat the devil by following his example and look in three different ways we do this. First of all, if we're going to overcome the devil in his attempt to bring us down. We must obey the will of God. It's essential we obey the will of God. Now, look with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 4. We're in verse 
1, and here we see that Jesus Christ, as this great example for us of following the will of the Father, was filled with the Spirit. He says in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I have good news for you if you're a Christian. The very moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift. As a matter of fact, He's referred to as the down payment for your inheritance. The Bible says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God coming to indwell you in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ living inside of you. Now, the Bible refers to that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not commanded to be baptized in the Spirit. The reason that is true is because at the moment you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are baptized in the Spirit. And you don't get more of the Spirit later. You either have the Holy Spirit or you do not. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living within you, it's because you're not a genuine follower of Christ. You're not a believer. But if you are a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. He's tabernacled in you. He he takes up residence within you. That's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible does, however, say that we are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, constantly, we're to be under the control of the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So, when we read here in Luke 4, verse 1, that Jesus was full of the Spirit, it simply means that He was under the control of the Holy Spirit. He was yielding to the, to the will of the Father. He wasn't walking according to His own purpose, His own plan. He was walking according to the will of the Father. He was being led of the Holy Spirit, and He was obedient to the Holy Spirit. So He was Filled with the Spirit. Now, what happens to us as Christians is, although we have the Holy Spirit, there are times where we do not yield our will to His will. When that happens, we grieve the Spirit of God. Or another way to say it is, we quench the Holy Spirit. And we, we will know this has happened because we'll feel this sense of conviction within us that we're not where we need to be spiritually. We will sense a dryness spiritually in our lives. We will be convicted of particular sin that we need to confess and forsake. Uh, and, And that's how we know that we're grieving the Holy Spirit. When we disobey the Word of God and walk according to our own desire, our own will, instead of the will of the Father. So Jesus was filled with the Spirit. But also, he was anointed by the Spirit. Looking at in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. You may wonder, well, why was he at the Jordan? He was there because John the Baptist was there. John the Baptist was there because the Bible says there was much water there. And he was performing baptisms. And to baptize someone, you have to have a lot of water. If you baptize baptize them according to the Scripture, because the word baptize means to immerse beneath the water. So you had to have a lot of water. So John went to the Jordan where there's a great source of water in this dry, arid environment. 
And Jesus, knowing that John was there, went to be baptized of John. So we read in chapter 3 of Luke, verses 21 and 22, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. There's a lot packed into these two verses. One is that Jesus was being baptized as a way to identify with us. He was showing what he came to accomplish. Keep in mind, his baptism was the initiation of his public ministry. Jesus is 30 years of age at this point, and he's just beginning his public ministry. So baptism is how he starts it. And his baptism is showing us what his purpose in coming to the earth is, and that is to die on the cross, be buried, and raised from the dead. And that's a picture that is conveyed through baptism. Now, we're baptized in order to identify with Jesus. And our purpose in baptism is to show that we have committed our lives to Christ. And and when we go beneath the water, it pictures our death to the old person. And we've died in Christ as Jesus died on the cross. We died with him by faith. And then coming up out of the water is a picture of a resurrection. We've been raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus was being baptized. And you'll notice here that when he's baptized, the Bible says that uh, coming up out of the water, that as a dove, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Let me point out to you, you find three persons of the Trinity mentioned in this passage. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three distinct personages that make up the one essence of who God is. We call this the Trinity. But Jesus is baptized here, and he's baptized, he's anointed for the purpose of going out about his ministry, ultimately leading to the cross where he would die and be raised from the dead so that you and I could by faith be forgiven of our sins. And that's a great place for even a Baptist to say amen. That was pretty good. Let's try it again one more time. Amen. Jesus Christ died so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with God for eternity. That's why Jesus came. So he's obeying the will of God, the Father, in that he's filled with the Spirit. He's anointed by the Spirit to carry out his public ministry. And also he is led by the Spirit. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 4. The latter part of verse 1 says... And Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And this is the Holy Spirit that leads him to the wilderness. The wilderness here is a reference to it's a reference to that location between Jericho and the Dead Sea spanning up to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a plateau, and if you, 
If you start at the Dead Sea and you begin to walk up towards Jerusalem, it will take you a while to do that because you will be ascending one mile up to Jerusalem. Between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, or Jerusalem and and over toward Jericho, is what is known as the wilderness. When I was a kid, I used to think about the wilderness being like a, a forest. But that's not what is referred to here. The wilderness here refers to a dry, arid desert. It's rocky. It is barren. Uh, no one lives out in the desert, or very few people, some nomadic people still live in the desert, but for the most part, it's nothing but rocks and sand. There are animals, wild animals, that live in the crevices of the rock and the, the rock cliffs. And so it's a dangerous place. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it's referred to as desolation. It's a dangerous place. You might wonder, well, why is Jesus, he's been baptized, he's about to start his ministry, why is it that he's out in the desert? Why did the Spirit of God lead him to that place? It seems kind of unusual. Well, we find out in verse 2 why he's in the desert. Let's read about it. For 40 days, Jesus was being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Jesus is in this wilderness, this dry, barren, dangerous territory, just east of Jerusalem. For 40 days, he has nothing to eat. He's tired. He's exhausted. He is hungry. But what he's doing there is he's pouring out his heart before the Father in prayer. He's about to begin, as I mentioned, his public ministry. So it's important that he is ready to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. That he's focused on what the Father has called him to do. And this helps him to stay focused. But while there, he is tempted. Now, it's important to point out to you that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Father knew that when he went into the wilderness, that temptation would come. And that's important. Because Jesus defeated the devil. So you and I had the victory over the devil. You and I can overcome his temptation, not because we have enough of of our own motivation to do so. It's it's not because we have this intestinal fortitude that, that we can resist the temptation on our own. That's not it at all. It's because Christ won the victory for us that you and I now can walk in victory as Christians. So he's filled with the Spirit, he's anointed by the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit. Now listen carefully. When we disobey God's will, we are in a position of vulnerability to temptation. When we obey God's will, we're in a position of victory over temptation. 
When I was a teenager, my parents used to tell me, nothing good happens in town after 11 p.m. And they expected me to be home by 11 p.m. And I know that may sound strange to some of you young folks here, but that's the way it was back at my mom and dad's house. They expected that. By obeying my parents' will, I positioned myself to overcome temptation. However, it does not, you need to understand this, listen carefully. Remember, obeying God's will does not always prevent you from being tempted. However, it does protect you when you are tempted. Just as Jesus was led of the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, he overcame. He won the victory. Why? Because he was positioned in the will of the Father. Because Jesus always obeyed the will of the Father, he always prevailed over temptation. We too must obey God's will to be victorious over temptation. We can't do this alone. We don't have the strength to do it. We cannot consistently obey God in the power of human flesh. The only way we can defeat the devil is by obeying the will of God. That's essential to understand. There are basically, listen to this, as I mentioned early on, there are basically three areas Satan uses to tempt us. Now, these temptations may come in a lot of different ways, and they, they may feel differently and look differently, but you can put them into three basic areas or categories. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 tell us about these, where we read, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God shall abide forever. So in this, or in these two verses, we see here the three areas of temptation that we contend with, that we struggle with. From day to day, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But we're also reminded in order to overcome, we must obey the will of God. These are the same three areas that the devil used against Jesus as recorded in our text today. Jesus overcame each of these with the word of God. You saw earlier that obeying the will of God is essential to overcome temptation. But I also want to add and emphasize that applying the word of God is essential in being victorious over temptation. Now we must see how to apply this word in our lives. So go with me now to verse 3. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And here we see the application of God's word. Jesus the Christ uses the Word of God as a weapon against his enemy. Notice, first of all, Satan approaches Jesus trying to use this tactic where he so often 
is victorious in dealing with human beings, and that is the lust of the flesh. Look at verse 3. And the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I told you in that area it's very uh, barren, rocky, sandy, dusty. And there are, there are stones that resemble bread. Look very similar. As a matter of fact, if you, if you took one of those loaves and put it down in, in Holt's Bakery, if you, if you walked in there, it would be hard to distinguish it from a loaf of bread. They look very similar. Jesus has gone without food for 40 days. Obviously, he's hungry. So here comes Satan with a subtle temptation. He's trying to create this lust of the flesh. He's appealing to the fleshly desire for food. And again, notice in verse 3, he says, if you are the Son of God. Well, Satan, folks, listen. Satan knew quite well that Jesus was the Son of God. That was obvious to him. He knew that. But what is he doing? He's using the same approach that he used so successfully with Eve. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, when uh, Eve was confronted by the serpent, that old devil, Satan. And he began to ask questions of Eve. And, and Eve said, uh, God has said I could partake of all the fruit in this garden, but there is a tree in the middle of the garden that I'm not to eat of its fruit. And Satan responded by saying, did God really say this? Is it true that God really said you're not to eat of that tree in the midst of the garden? God knows in the day that you eat of that tree, you will be like him. You'll be as wise as he is. Eve, God's trying to keep the best from you. And if you're going to meet your needs, you better... You better do it yourself. You can't wait on him to do it. And this is the same type of temptation that Jesus is being confronted by from Satan. Satan essentially is saying, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, what are you doing here in the wilderness? If you're the Son of God, why is the Father not giving you some food to eat? You've been here 40 days. You have the power, if you're the Son of God, to produce some food and eat it for yourself. Satisfy that hunger that you have. You can't wait for God to do this. God the Father, He, he apparently is not interested in helping you. If you're going to have your needs met, you better take it into your own hands. Now, was it wrong for Jesus to be hungry? Absolutely not. Would it be wrong for Jesus to produce food for himself and eat? No, Jesus produced food. Remember when the, the thousands were hungry and Jesus took just a few loaves of bread and some fish and multiplied it? He did that on at least two occasions and fed thousands of people. It was a legitimate hunger. 
But Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to to exercise his power and authority outside the will of the Father. He's trying to say to Jesus, the Father is not really concerned about your needs. You ever feel that way? God, why aren't you concerned about me? I've been praying all this time uh, for you to, to deliver I've asked for you to heal me, and Lord, I'm still sick. Lord, I've asked for the job, and where is it? Lord, I desire to be in a relationship with someone, and I've waited all this time. Why aren't you listening to me? And what Satan does, he tries to tempt us to go outside of God's plan and purpose And meet that need independently from God the Father. And that was what Satan was trying to do in Jesus' life. Now notice the response Jesus gave. He quoted from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. He answered and said to him, it is written, that is, this is from the scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone. The context of this verse goes back to when God provided for his people in their wilderness wanderings. Remember they were out in the desert and they were there because they had disobeyed God. And finally God had enough. He said, you're not going into the land. Your children will, but not you. You'll die in this wilderness because of your disobedience. So God gave them manna. But it was God that provided the manna. And what Jesus is saying is this, and it it addresses this temptation specifically. He's saying that God will provide whatever I need when I need it. I need more than bread. And God can sustain me whether I eat bread or not. I'm going to trust God no matter the situation. No matter what my physical needs are, I'm trusting my Father to make provision. That's how he defeated Satan. So if you are beginning to feel tempted to go outside of the will of God and you're thinking, well, maybe God doesn't care about me or maybe God's not heard my prayer. You know, I'm in this all by myself, all alone. And if I'm going to get this need met, this physical, this human desire met, this passion quenched, I'm going to have to take action. And friend, I'm telling you, it's a mistake when we do that. It's a mistake when we do that. It's a sin when we do that. And we will regret it at some point down the road. So that's the first way Jesus uses this scripture. It is to deal with Satan's attempt to create a desire that he convinces Jesus can only be uh, met apart from from the will of the Father. But then he, he uses this other tactic. It's the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And this has to do with worldly possessions. Go with me, if you will, uh, to verse 5. 
And he led him up. That is, Satan led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, there, that's a very sobering statement, dear friends. The lust of the eyes. He's trying to appeal by using worldly possessions. Here's the subtle temptation. He is saying to Jesus... I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory, and you know I have it to give because I have control over it. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. And by that, it simply means to point out that he has usurped authority over the earth. How did this happen, you ask? It happened in Genesis chapter 3. Remember God had given Adam dominion over the earth? But what happened? Adam yielded to the temptation of Satan. And with his fall, he yielded his dominion over to Satan. Satan now is the usurper. He's the God of the world. However, Jesus Christ was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 to come and defeat the usurper, the devil. How was Jesus going to defeat him? He was going to come and go to the cross and win back legally what was legally lost in the garden. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he stomped the head of the serpent. He bruised his head. He regained what was lost in the garden. Now, Christ has not yet fully reasserted himself and regained his power or reasserted his power over the earth. That's in the process of happening. That will come at the right time. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And let me, let me read it for you. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11, and let's look at verse 15. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel shouted, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, notice this now, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is at the midpoint of the tribulation when it is clearly seen that Christ has reasserted himself and that Satan, Satan's days are numbered. And it's a proclamation that Christ has regained 
By reasserting himself, he's regained control over the earth and over all things, and he will rule in power and great glory forever and ever and ever. And this is spelling the ultimate defeat of Satan. Now, you may ask, well, why is it, Pastor, that uh, Christ doesn't just go ahead and do that now? Satan is allowed to fulfill what was started in the garden in that sin when it was acted out by Adam started the process of death that has spread throughout all humanity. And the, the nation, the world, the universe is under a curse because of that sin. And what is happening now is that sin is running its course. And it will declare through that course that there's only one righteous being that has ever existed. Only one holy God. Only one all-powerful being. And that is the one true and living God that we serve. And that Satan's effort to destroy what God created will ultimately and always fail. So we're in a process. Sin is running its course. So that all will see just how destructive it is. And for those who choose it, how devastating it will be. But here we see, notice again, going back if you would to verse 8. How did Jesus respond to this temptation? He said, it is written. Again, he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13 and says... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, friend, I don't know about you, but when I cast my eyes on this passage and realize that Satan is trying to get Jesus Christ to become a devil worshiper, it's a frightening thought to me. It's a sobering read for me. When you realize that Satan is so audacious that he's trying to approach Jesus and convince him to bow down and worship him, what does that say for you and me? There's only, way, only one way we can overcome him, and that is through Christ. Essentially, Satan is saying to Jesus, there's another way. You don't have to go to the cross. You, you don't have to die and suffer for the sins of the world. I will give you these things. I will give you control of the earth. Just worship me. Bow down before me. But see, that was not the plan of the Father. The plan of the Father was that Jesus go down that long road to the cross and die in humiliation because of your sins and my sins so that we could be forgiven and be brought into relationship with God Himself. And Jesus did not stray from the Father's will and He applied the Word of God. Then we go to Another strategy of Satan, that is the pride of life. This has to do with selfish pride. We, we all struggle with these things, selfish pride. 
And so the Bible says here in verse 9, go with me to Luke 4, verse 9. And the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now let me stop there for just a moment and explain to you what this is. The pinnacle of the temple. There was on the temple mount, and Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, describes this. But there was a pinnacle there uh, called the pinnacle of the temple, but it was associated with a portico of Herod. On the southeastern corner of that portico was what is referred to as the pinnacle of the temple. If you stand on the pinnacle of the temple and face to the east, you will be looking down into the Kidron Valley. Just across that valley, you have the Mount of Olives. But if you look down in that valley, from the top of that pinnacle to the valley below, to the bottom of the valley, is 450 feet. As a matter of fact, just as a side note, uh, history tells us that this is where James, the brother of Jesus, was cast over and killed by those who were persecuting the church in Jerusalem where he was pastoring. But we see here, this is a high area. This is a 440, 450 feet height where Jesus is standing with the devil. And he says to him, notice he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down here, for it is written. Now, let me stop here just a moment. Satan is trying to get Jesus to do something spectacular, something really amazing and miraculous. And he's saying, if you really want attention, if you really want to prove that you're the Son of God, this is how you can do it. And he uses Scripture to support his errant suggestion. How about that? Now, Satan is very shrewd, folks. He doesn't mind quoting Scripture to you. That's why you better be very careful when someone comes knocking at your door and they want to talk to you about the Scriptures and they start pulling Scriptures out of context. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you pull the Scripture out of out of context and misapply it. And this is what Satan is doing. He's taking a scripture and trying to use the scripture wrongly against Jesus. And he quotes from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says. If you'll just jump down, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and their hands On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That is, if you'll jump off, then you will force the Father to send His angels to to scoop you up before you hit the ground. And, And you'll have people down below walking here, and they will see this, and they will know for sure you're the Son of God. You can prove it. Do the spectacular. Do the miraculous. Get everybody's attention. But this is not the will of the Father. Jesus did not come to demonstrate attention for himself in a selfish pride sort of way. He came to do the will of the Father, and that's exactly what he did. And he's certainly not going to resort to Satan's suggestion in order to prove himself to be God. 
Again, Jesus responds in verse 12 and answers and says to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16, another quotation of Scripture. This is presumptuous sin. The Bible speaks about the sin of presumption. And that is, I'm going to force God to act. I'm going to get him to do something by putting myself in a position to where he'll have to act. That is certainly not consistent with walking in the will of the Father. You've departed from his will and you're walking in your will when you do that. And Jesus defeats each of these areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, by quoting Scripture. That's why I want to commend you for being here today. You're here to listen to the Word of God. And this is why I want to encourage you, when you come to church, bring your Bible. And it's good if you have one on your phone. I do, and I read that an awful lot in my daily Bible reading. But it's good when you bring one that's a hard copy. And you bring a pencil so you can make notes in your Bibles. Uh, You'll find that there is a lesson guide that we provide in the foyer of the church. Take that. Bring it in here. Make some notes. Study those notes. Grow in your understanding of the Scripture. Because it is the sword of the Spirit. Imagine for a moment being attacked by someone physically. And you have a sword, but you keep it in the sheath. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. A failure to apply God's Word when we're being tempted is a strategic mistake. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 11, Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. To defeat the devil, we must obey the will of God. We must apply the word of God. But there's a third thing, and I want to deal with this quickly, and that is perform the work of God. Obey the will of God, apply the word of God, and perform the work of God. Look at the victory that Jesus experienced in verse 13. When the devil had finished every temptation... He left him until an opportune time. Jesus won the victory. As a matter of fact, the same account that is rendered in the Gospel of Matthew points out that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. The Father sent the angels to minister to him. And presumably providing the food and water, refreshment, encouragement after that 40 days of testing. That's what the, his father provided. So there's victory that comes when we walk in and obey the will of God, when we apply the word of God, not only victory, but there's power. Look in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Notice that. 
the, the news is spreading about Jesus. He's not having to do something spectacular outside of the will of the Father. He's simply doing ministry in Galilee. And, and, and the word is spreading that this man is different. His word is powerful. He's preaching as like no one else they'd ever heard. And he's performing miracles not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And to convey the will of the Father. And then notice ministry in verse 15. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Here he's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, obeying the Word of God and the will of God. And God is blessing him as he performs this ministry. I would say to you that as we walk daily in the will of God, obeying the Word of God, what happens is we are performing God's work. We're doing the work He wants us to do and that He's called us to do. God has not called His people to sit idly by and waste our time and not be engaged in ministry. He's called us to be salt and light. And in doing that, we're positioning ourselves in the will of God, obeying the Word of God. My mama used to say, idle hands are a devil's workshop. In other words, keep busy. Laziness leads to bad behavior. As Christians, God has called us to be busy doing His work. Martin Luther, that great reformer of old, said, You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You and I will face temptation. That is true. No question about that. We can't stop the tempter from trying to tempt us. But we do have the power to overcome his temptations. God has provided a pathway to victory. We do this by obeying the Father's will. By applying the word of God. And by doing the work of God. And may God bless you as you are confronted this week with the challenges ahead to remember how you can defeat the devil. Father, we thank you for your word. And most importantly, for those who don't know you today, I pray that by faith they would trust Jesus to save them. And I pray for the rest of us who are Christians that we would obey your will, apply your word, and that we would perform your work. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you'd like to receive Jesus as your Savior, please come. And I'm here to talk to you about your faith and to pray with you. And maybe you want to join this church. We'd love to have you. To join, you just come and say, Pastor, I want to become a member here. You can do that right now. Some of you are members but, and you're Christians, but you've never been baptized. I urge you to request baptism so you can publicly demonstrate your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to come to the altar and pray about particular need in your life. You could do that. However the Lord is speaking to you as we stand and sing together, you come.
seated for just a moment. We have an announcement to make to you this morning as Brother Nathan, who is the chairman of our search committee for the worship pastor, comes to give you some information. I want to encourage you to be back tonight as we look into God's Word. It's going to be the book of Romans tonight, so I look forward to seeing you. Brother Nathan. Thank you. 